0: WNYC Studios is supported by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, software for technical computing and model-based design. MathWorks, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com.
1: Science Friday is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. That's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere.
2: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, a conversation with outgoing NIH Director Francis Collins. But first, what better way to think about winter and winter holidays... Then, with an exploration of ice. Yeah, so we're dipping into the Science Friday cold storage to bring back this conversation from 2017. A tour of the unique kinds of ice throughout the solar system, like, for instance, frazil ice. And I mean, that's not ice that's extremely stressed or harried, despite how you might feel after this year. It's just one of the many kinds of ice you may find forming in the seas at our poles. Also, there's pancake ice, sugar ice, ridge ice, grease ice, and a whole lot more. Mariners and scientists who spend time in the sea ice by the poles have more than two dozen names for the types they see. Joining me to help explore those is Ted Maxim, associate scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Welcome
3: to Science Friday. Thanks for having me, Ira.
1: You're packing for a trip to Antarctica, even as we speak, where there's a lot of ice?
3: Yes, I am. We're we're going down to Antarctica um, this Austral winter, um, so it's sort of our summer. It's actually April and May, um, and and trying to get as deep into the ice pack as we can um, to see what's going on there.
1: So that's going via an icebreaker, then.
3: It's going via an icebreaker, yeah, and and um, going through sea ice. So it's it's not through big glaciers. That would mm-hmm. be impossible. The sea ice is down there is usually only a few feet thick. So. Um, you got a strong enough ship, you can get through pretty well.
1: So, is it still uh, dark down there? In, in uh, is it going to be getting uh, dark uh, soon? I should say it's Austral, uh, so right? It's right. Back- so
3: it's it's the opposite of us, right? right? So it's quite light down there. Um, by the time we get down there, which is going to be mid-April, it's going to be starting to get dark, and uh-huh. and we plan to get as far south as you possibly can um, at sea on this planet, which is about seventy-eight degrees south. Um, by the time we get there in mid-May, it's going to be uh, 24 hours of darkness.
1: And it's not scary to be in the ocean
3: <laughs> surrounded by all that sea ice? <laughs> it's, 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 no, it's not scary. I mean, you get used to work. In the dark. I mean, like 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 an ice fisherman, you know, he's comfortable walking on, on, on ice in Minnesota. Um, we get used to it. it it's not really uh, that scary at all. But it's certainly an, an eerie feeling. It's, it's sort of a very odd landscape and in the darkness uh, it adds an extra element to it.
1: Uh, I'll bet it does, having been down there in the summertime. I, I can only imagine what wintering over must be like or in the dark. Uh, let's talk about some of the ice that's down there. This thing I mentioned, frazzle ice. What is that?
3: Yeah, so frazzle ice is really just a term for loose crystals of ice. It could be in the ocean or it could be in a river. Um, it's kind of like a a little bit like a snowflake in the water, I guess. And that forms because the water is turbulent and you get lots of this in Antarctica because if you know your ge- geography in Antarctica, it's surrounded by the stormiest ocean on the planet, more right. or less. And so you have these big waves traveling through it. Um, so it's really hard to form a solid sheet of ice, as you can imagine. So it has to form loose crystals for first. This forms a soupy mass of frazzle crystals. And eventually they start to agglomerate together as it damps out the waves. Mm-hmm.
1: Now we have all kinds of ice.
3: I mentioned uh, there were a dozen, what is pancake ice? So pancakes is, pancake is the next stage of ice. Um, so as you get a lot of this frazzle in the uh, in the ocean, it, it looks kind of like a uh, a mass, a soupy mass of slush. Now what that does, it sort of uh, damps down the waves a little bit and as it does that, things can start freezing together, but you know, it the waves are really big there, so it's hard to damp them down right away. So these soupy masses sort of stick together and bang against each other. And so you get these tiny little pans, well, you know, tiny, maybe three to 10 feet across, um, that are just banging into each other, um, like, a, like a bunch of pucks on an air hockey table, if you will. Um, and And they form these round shapes that, you know, people thought looked like Pancakes, but they got kind of rough edges because they're always crashing into each other.
1: Yeah, we have a we have photos of these ices on our website. They are amazing. They do look like I was waiting for the maple syrup to come out. Uh, and then you have <laughs> right. ridges and nallas and sugar. Uh, tell us about these.
3: Right. So, yeah, kind of like, like Eskimos with all their words yeah. for snow. It's because things take different forms. You want to be able to describe it in a concise way. Um, so sugar. It's actually a, a kind of ice you don't see very often it's when the frazzle kind of gloms together in in, in like almost like snowballs floating around in the ocean um Nihilus is sort of the opposite of frazzle ice it's when you have fresh ice forming and i think everybody who um who who's been in cold weather is familiar with this you see it as a very thin veneer of ice on top of a lake on the sea ice. Uh, sorry, on the ocean, it looks a little bit different because that is a little bit salty. So it, it tends not to be as, as clear as Mm. it would on the, uh, on, on a lake. So that has to form, you, you can imagine you need really calm conditions for that, um, no waves. So that forms sort of in the interior of the pack. Once you've got pack ice, if you've got any cracks or openings, Nihilus can form in there and that's quite thin and then it starts to thicken because it's Antarctica, it's really cold, um, and as the ice continues to move around, that can sort of pile up as big plates of ice crash together, plates we call, we call them ice flows, crash together, um, and bits break off and sort of pile up into these big sort of walls of ice, if you will, that can be many feet thick. Um, in the Arctic, you get, because the forces are so uh, large there, you can get ice uh, piled up to tens of feet thick.
1: Well, you know, I remember when I was in Antarctica, right on the shoreline of McMurdo there, it was some of the most beautiful stuff i'd ever seen was the sea ice piling up you know changing shape forming caves it was just beautiful i could imagine you know why you'd want to go yeah there. and
3: that's something you know when when we go south we're sitting on these icebreakers and we're always getting off on the ice and doing our measurements and we're busy with our science but to me you know one of the most enjoyable things is just sitting on the bridge of the ship just watching for hours um as you're going through different Types of ice or different formations of ice—it's always constantly changing. It's not, you know, I don't want to say it's boring on a lake, but it—it's pretty uniform on a lake right. <laughs> most of the time. The Great Lakes are a little bit more interesting, I suppose, but you know, somewhere like Antarctica or the Arctic, you have this constantly changing landscape. Um, but it's all, yeah, it's all ice.
1: We have—we've uh, had people on Twitter asking us about the brinicles icy fingers of death there's a wonderful youtube video on this that looks just like right. it's cgi it's so
3: spooky looking but have you ever seen one tell us describe what what's going on there yeah so th- this is an interesting thing about ice it's or sea ice it's not like other types of ice in that it's a composite material because the ocean is is, is salt water of course um but it's hard to freeze that salt into the ice. So what it does is it traps ice in little, po- I mean, sorry, salt in little pockets of brine in the ice. And that really determines the properties of that ice. Now, when you get the salt trapped in there, it doesn't like staying in there. Um, so it tries to drain out through this porous network um, within the ice. There's all these little channels of, of brine. And and so um, when you get ice thick enough and and the, the salt starts draining out. It sort of drains out kind of like a, in a little river going down vertically. Now, in Antarctica, um, sometimes, like you, you mentioned McMurdo Sound area, you can get these uh, sort of rivers of brine coming down into water that's um, at the freezing point, but that brine is much colder. So as soon as it hits that water, it freezes. Um, and So it starts forming this kind of icicle Going down into the the ocean below, except it's hollow, so it can have this brine coming out down through this tube, and some of these tubes can be many feet uh, long, and then that video is kind of cool, and yeah. you had this this drainage happen very rapidly, and when that that brine hit the bottom of the ocean, that is what it's in a state we call supercooled, so it's actually colder than the freezing point. As soon as it hits something where it can start nucleating ice. It starts to freeze, and you saw that spread along the ocean bottom. It was really cool because you saw all these sea stars trying to run away from this, but then get trapped in the ice.
1: Right, it's 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 a great yeah. little video. It's great to see that. How you mentioned uh, the Antarctic oceans how how are the how are the oceans different? How is the ice in Antarctica different from the
3: Arctic ice up north? Right. Well, I should say that they used to be quite different. Um, they're getting more and more alike. Um, in the Arctic, the ice, um, be- because the Arctic is sort of this enclosed basin, the ice doesn't doesn't uh, escape the Arctic Ocean very easily. So it can circulate there, because the ice drifts around, it can circulate there for many years and get thicker and thicker. Um, so you have ice there that used to average maybe 10 feet thick. and And it can get quite thick because the ocean doesn't have... Um, the deep ocean, the heat has trouble getting up, up to the ice and melting it. In the Antarctic, things are are very different. It's a wide open sea that it's exposed to. So it's always buffeted by the waves. And deep beneath the, the, the surface of the ocean, there's actually some really warm water that gets stirred up really easily. And that keeps the ice very thin. So actually, um, most ice, unless it's ridged, rarely gets more than a few feet thick in the Antarctic, which is convenient for those of us who want to drive our icebreaker through there. Yeah, um, But it makes it for a very different environment. The uh, Arctic has this thick ice with big, thick ridges. The Antarctic has thin ice with more pancake ice, and things are, are moving around much more rapidly. But that's all sort of changing a little bit because we've seen over the past decade that in the summer in the Arctic, Almost half of the ice has been disappearing. Um, We are getting about half of what we used to have, say, back in the 1980s. Um, So the Antarctic is sort of an interesting analog for what we might expect to Mm. see in the Arctic. And actually, about a year and a half ago, we were up there and we saw this extensive fields of frazzle and pancake ice that really haven't been seen in the high, high Arctic before.
1: This conversation was recorded in 2017. I'm talking with Ted Maxim, an associate scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. We have to take a break, and when we come back, adding to the cool conversation with someone who sees the poles with an artist's eye.
4: Of course, in the outer solar system, a lot of these moons are, are ice worlds. Um, Europa has an ocean probably 100 kilometers deep beneath an ice crust, and on that crust, you see this these pressure ridges and things that are somewhat similar to what we see down in Antarctica on the, the
1: open sea ice. What can looking at Earth's poles teach an artist about distant planets and icy moons? Stay with us. Science Friday is supported by NetSuite. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep obvious but with higher expenses on materials employees distribution and borrowing everything costs more so to reduce costs and headaches smart businesses are graduating to netsuite by oracle netsuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in a cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to NetSuite.com slash Friday. That's NetSuite.com slash Friday.
0: Science Friday is supported by Random House, publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. When Breath Becomes Air is a memoir by an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to find hope and beauty in the face of his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a memoir about a doctor becoming a patient, a new father confronting mortality, and a reminder to live while we're alive. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is available at prh.com air.
3: This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza.
0: Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas.
1: Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever
5: you get your podcasts.
1: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. We're taking a tour of some of the strange and wonderful, dare I say, cool ice in our solar system in an archival conversation from 2017. Ted Maxim is an associate scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And joining me now is Michael Carroll, an astronomical artist based in Littleton, Colorado. His work often tries to imagine the surface of distant worlds. He spent three weeks exploring Antarctica, looking for inspiration for the surface of icy moons like Europa. Welcome to Science Friday.
4: Oh, I, I love your show, and uh, it's great to be here. Thanks.
1: Well, thank you. We're very happy uh, to have you. Um, uh, you know, why, why is Antarctica such a good place to look for inspiration for a moon of, of Jupiter or Saturn?
4: Well, um, for some of the same things that your other guests have been talking about, it's uh, it's unique in so many ways, the way the ice behaves down there. Of course, in the outer solar system, a lot of these moons are, are ice worlds. Um, Europa has... An ocean probably a hundred kilometers deep beneath an ice crust and on that crust you see this these pressure ridges and things that are somewhat similar to what we see down in antarctica on the the open sea ice uh... right there next to the ross ross ice shelf uh... but uh... more than that there are some fairly specific analogs we we're looking at up on um, mount Erebus on the, the a big volcano down there. Really?
1: Such as as what?
4: Well, um, so Erebus has these these fumaroles, these volcanic vents all over uh, its slopes. And uh, so the hot air comes up through these things. It hits this frigid um, air up above, and it forms columns of ice. And these towers of ice. Are just the most bizarre things. They are beautiful and inspiring. Uh, the, the blues, the textures in them. Uh, some of these things are five stories tall and, uh, they look like a, a nightmare from Salvador Dali's diary. You know, they're just <laughs> the most bizarre things. But because you get this, this constant flow, building these structures, we think that things similar to that may happen hmm. on, for example, Saturn's moon Enceladus.
1: Wow. Talking about the ice and the, the poles, and now we're moving out into space. Ted, uh, could a place like Antarctica help scientists somehow plan for a mission to icy moons?
3: Yeah, definitely, and there there are uh, scientists doing specifically that. Um, one of the interesting things um In in sea ice, like I said, there's this brine, liquid brine in the ice. What that has in it is these these organisms that can tolerate extreme cold, and so people are interested in looking at sea ice as an analog for what kind of habitats you might possibly have on a moon like Europa. Um, But Antarctica is also a really nice proving ground for um, vehicles that you might design to explore yeah. a, a moon like Europa and so there are a couple of groups that are are are, are trying to develop vehicles uh, sort of prototype vehicles yeah. that might go up to Europa and, and and putting them under these ice shelf to see how 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 uh, you can technologically achieve um you know getting down through yeah. um many kilometers of ice down yeah. to a some Unknown ocean,
1: uh, Michael Carroll. When you look at a place on Earth like this, how do you how do you account for how a moon or another planet uh, might look differently?
3: Well,
4: uh, the main difference uh, is, of course, air. We've got lots of nice air to breathe uh, here on Earth. Although up on Mount Erebus, there isn't that much. Um, but uh, when you're dealing with a vacuum, uh, these towers that build may take on some. Some different uh, textures and forms because on Antarctica they're sculpted by by wind. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, we do think that there are uh, some fascinating structures out there. And and for an astronomical artist, uh, yeah. we we try to learn from nature um, to inform us uh, uh, for those uh, guesses that we're making in terms of the geology on on other
1: worlds. Because you have such a good eye as an artist, do, you, do the scientists come to you and say, hey, have you seen anything that we have missed, perhaps?
4: Well, you know, uh, it's, it's always a wonderful collaboration. Um, my colleague that uh, that I traveled to Antarctica with, Rosalie Lopez, um, who has been on your show, by the way? Um, she uh, is often talking to me about how things would look uh, because she doesn't think in those terms, and and so she'll give me some numbers, and I take those and translate them into something visual that uh, that the non scientist can understand, relate
1: to. Well, we're gonna we're gonna have uh, Rosalie join us right after the break. and We have to say goodbye to both of you because we are running out of time. Uh, fascinating. Uh, Ted Maxim is associate scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in uh, Woods Hole. Michael Carroll is an astronomical artist uh, based in Littleton, Colorado. And we have actually up on our website uh, some of your artwork. at sciencefriday.com slash space art. So uh, it's really, really interesting stuff that you're doing. And thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Have a great weekend.
4: Hey, thanks, Ira. Thank hey. you.
1: If uh, you just joined us, we, we were just marveling at the ice at the Earth's poles, and it certainly is beautiful and it is interesting, but we're not quite done with ice yet because uh, as it's certainly not as unusual as the icy phenomenon at work in the far reaches of our solar system. And I'm talking about the cryovolcano. It is like a volcano, but instead of hot magma, you have this frigid slush bursting through an icy crust. Cryovolcanoes have been suspected on the icy moons of Saturn and Jupiter, like Enceladus and Titan, and even uh, dwarf planet Pluto may have some. My guest, Rosalie Lopez, a volcanologist and manager of planetary sciences at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, knows a lot about this. Hi, welcome to Science Friday.
5: Oh, hello. Hello. It's nice to be back.
1: Nice to have oh. you back. How, how are ice volcanoes possible? What's going on inside there?
5: Well, they're very weird. Uh, we didn't even think that they were possible until we actually saw evidence because there is nothing like them on Earth. But when the Voyager spacecraft flew by Neptune in 1989, it actually saw some 8-kilometer-high uh, plumes uh, and uh, uh, and also some very smooth regions that uh, people figured out had to be caused by uh, volcanism, but not rock volcanism or magma volcanism like we see on Earth, but a very special kind of volcanism that we call cryovolcanism.
1: Hmm. Does the science of these ordinary volcanoes translate easily to, to cryovolcanoes, or are they they are just different in how they behave?
5: Uh, Not easily now, and we're still figuring that out. Uh, You know, essentially on a cryovolcano, it it happens when you have an icy crust, uh, like on Jupiter's moon Europa or Saturn's moon Enceladus or Titan, and underneath that icy crust, uh, you have an ocean of liquid water, maybe liquid water with things like methane or ammonia, And so volcanism, we we actually had to redefine what volcanism is because uh, volcanism used to be defined as the process that brings molten rock from the interior of a body to the surface. But now uh, we had to redefine it and say it brings magma, whatever the magma is for that specific body. So if the magma is water or slushy ice, uh, that's what that volcanism on that body will bring up.
1: So you've actually had to also redefine what magma is.
5: Yes, exactly. It's uh, uh, magma uh, on an icy moon or on Pluto, uh, it's it's different. It's not molten rock, uh, like on Earth or on Venus or on Mars. And when we study volcanoes on Mars, for example, which I have done, uh, we can use Earth analogs quite easily, uh, you can go to Hawaii or Iceland, places, right. for example, that have shoot volcanoes. But when you're studying cryovolcanism, there, there, there are no cryovolcanoes on Earth. Uh, so that's what makes figuring out the process difficult.
1: So, so you know, as you say, on, on Earth, it's this hot magma that comes shooting up. We can imagine why it would do that. It's hot. It's coming out of the, you know, underneath the ground. What is driving the slushy water up through a volcano?
5: Well, that's what is difficult to figure out because, um, uh, uh, you know, if you think about just having a glass of water and ice cubes on top, ice cubes float. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the difficulty is how uh, do we get... Uh, do we get around that density difference uh, that the ice will want to be on top of the water? So how do you actually get the water up uh, to erupt? And there are various theoretical explanations. You could get uh, maybe part of that ice shell melting because of Tidal heating, uh, or and then they could make uh, close reservoirs of magma closer to the surface. You might get fractures, uh, like giant crevasses uh, opening up, and uh, and maybe that cryomagma has a lot of bubbles that would make it easier to come up. Maybe even that. Ice show is not completely ice, but it might have some silicates uh, in it. Uh, there are a lot of things that we don't know yet.
1: <laughs> I have a, a tweet coming in from Rand Lamada says, uh, Could a solar refrigerator Suck in salt water during the could you send could you send somebody there to uh, to these space you know a, a mission and 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 investigate and, and should you should that be part of any mission to these moons of Jupiter or Saturn
5: Oh I think it's very important to investigate cryovolcanism because um uh, if you have heat and you have water, those are two of the conditions that you need for life. Uh, so if you're going to look for life in the, these icy moons of the outer solar system, uh, the presence or absence of uh, cryovolcanism is very important. And, uh, you know, if I sent a lander to one of these worlds, I would definitely mm. uh, want to land, uh, you know, near uh, a cryovolcano. And, uh, and NASA just released a report on uh, a study of a lander to Jupiter's moon Europa. Uh, so maybe we're going to get there uh, with a lander.
1: Yeah,
5: uh, so <laughs> yes, we need more missions. <laughs>
1: Would this tell you, do these volcanoes speak anything about the possibility of any forms of life on any of these moons?
5: Uh, yes, because um, uh, you you need, as I said, heat and you need water. Those are not the only two things that you need for life, of course, and, you know, astrobiologists are still arguing about what are all the conditions that you need, but you certainly need those two. Um, so, the, you know, places maybe near the surface where you actually have pockets of uh, uh, this, uh, this uh, molten uh, ice or water uh, would be a good place to sample. Yeah. Uh, to To see if we actually have any kind of microbes there,
0: mm-hmm. and
5: in fact, many Antarctica studies, uh, some astrobiologists are going to Antarctica to actually study what kind of um, uh, microorganisms uh, we find there.
1: I have to ask you a question uh, akin to asking which child you like <laughs> best. <laughs> As someone, uh, some, you study both hot and cold volcanoes. Do you have
5: yes? Do you yes. Have a,
1: do you have a favorite?
5: Uh, Just between you well, and me. Uh, Okay. I I actually like, uh, maybe I like hot volcanoes better because I can actually go to them. uh, Good point. (laughs)
1: Good point. And then you can go home again, as they say. With That's right, kids. yes.
5: <laughs> but I did go to Erebus, which is not a volcano, but it was very, very cold. And yeah. uh, Michael Carr and I uh, went to Erebus in December, which was a, a, a fantastic trip.
1: Yeah, I was, there, I was there over 30 years ago myself. It really is, was a fantastic experience. Dr. Lopez, thank you very much for taking time to be with us today.
5: Oh, thank you so much.
1: And uh, we'll we'll have you back when, you know, tell us more about these volcanoes. Uh, Rosalie Lopez is a volcanologist and manager of planetary sciences at uh, NASA's uh, JPL in Pasadena, California. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. We've been talking about unusual ice throughout the solar system, but recently researchers here on Earth unveiled a kind of ice I'm sure that you haven't seen before. Here's what I mean. You know how you go to the grocery or fish market and you see cuts of fresh fish laid out on beds of ice to chill? And that shaved ice keeps the fish at the proper temperature. But of course, the ice is going to melt and probably get dirty. But what if you could have recyclable ice? Enter jelly ice. What's jelly ice? Lucian Wang, an associate professor of food science and technology at UC Davis, is here to fill us in. Tell us what this jelly ice is made of.
0: Sure. Um, this jelly ice cube is made of protein and water uh, with supplementation of natural antimicrobials. The high percentage water is the major cooling agent of this jelly ice cube.
1: And does the ice melt like regular water does?
0: It does inside of the cube. Um, so what we do is we have this physical and chemical cross-linkers. Um, they build this network for our proteins. Those network will trap the water inside of this cube. So even when the water is at its unfrozen status, it will not be released into the environment or go outside of the cube.
1: So should I be thinking of this like a sort of a solid cube of jello?
0: Yes, I think that's a good way to think about it.
1: So, Dr. Wang, why are your jelly ice cubes better than regular ice cubes or these food packs, you know, that we put in coolers?
0: There are several unique aspects about this jelly ice cube. First off, as we mentioned earlier, it does not generate melting water. So we don't have to worry about the melting water caused contamination. Secondly, it has this color changing property that can facilitate your recognition of the temperature change. Uh, when this jelly ice cube is at its frozen status, it has this beige color. When it's unfrozen, it's more transparent. You can cut it into the shape you want um, based on the shape of your food you want to cool. You can cut it so that you have the best contact between the jelly ice cube and your food item. Lastly. Um, Commercially available ice packs, most of them have this plastic uh, shell. So for jelly ice cube, it does not have that plastic. It is plastic-free. So after you use it for multiple times, according to our lab result, you can use it up to 10 times. So after you finish using them, you can just dispose them in your backyard or in your compost bin. Wow, so it's biodegradable when you're done with it. Yes.
1: Can you put it in your drinks for New Year's Eve?
0: That's a very good question since it's a protein-based, theoretically, yes. However, at this point, the current type of jelly gas cubes, we are more target for the cold chain uh, transportation. We believe down the road, um, the next generation will be more for consumer to use for their drinks.
1: Do you imagine that someday I will be able to buy it or there'll be a mix like making jello and folks whip up a batch of cubes when they need it?
0: Uh, Since we also add natural antimicrobials in there, it may be quite challenging to make it at home, but uh, we do believe uh, once we partner with industry uh, manufacturers, we hope that you can easily um, get access to those jelly ice cubes um, at your local grocery store.
1: Well, Dr. Wang, thank you very much for taking time to be with us, and good luck to you on your new ice cubes.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Lucian Wang is an associate professor of food science and technology at UC Davis. Happy New Year to you also. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, talking with Dr. Francis Collins, probably our final interview with him as he is stepping down as head of the NIH. Stay with us. Science Friday is supported by NetSuite. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to NetSuite.com slash Friday. That's NetSuite.com slash Friday. Hey there, folks. Ira here. I'm counting down the minutes to 2022 and reminding you that it's your last chance to make a donation for 2021. We still have that dollar-for-dollar donation match in effect. So take advantage and make your gift before midnight tonight. Go to sciencefriday.com slash support to make a difference now. Thanks, and wishing you a happy and science-filled New Year. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Dr. Francis Collins, the longest-serving director of the National Institutes of Health, stepped down from his post last week. Dr. Collins served three presidents over 12 years. Dr. Collins is an acclaimed geneticist. He helped discover the gene that causes cystic fibrosis, and when he became director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, he led the project that mapped the human genome. In a statement, President Joe Biden called Dr. Collins, quote, one of the most important scientists of our time. But even on the way out the door, Collins made news, predicting that the U.S. would soon see more than one million cases of COVID a day, in an interview with NPR. That's twice as many as the worst case scenario many scientists have predicted. Dr. Collins joined us back in October, shortly after he announced his retirement. Here is that timely interview as a fitting way to end this year. Welcome back to Science Friday.
2: Hey Ira, it's great to be
1: with you. So what are your first thoughts on leaving the job? What do you say to yourself about where do I go now, considering what I've done during my career? Well, it's been an incredible
2: privilege uh, to have the chance uh, to lead NIH, the largest supporter of biomedical research in the world, uh, over this 12-plus year period, serving three presidents, uh, going through a wide variety of scientific experiences, and of course, over the last 22 months, being focused intensively on dealing with COVID-19, which has been all-consuming and exhausting And where I think science has really risen to the challenge in remarkable ways, even though we still have faced some issues about whether the public is ready to embrace all of the things that science has produced. And that's been a bit frustrating. But I've just been so fortunate to work in this area with incredible people, because the NIH director really has the chance to look across the entire landscape of biomedical research, which meant my horizons had to get really expanded. Mm. And as a scientist, that's something you really like to do, learning about new things every day. That is absolutely part of the job, and it's a wonderful part of the job. And any specific
1: reason for you stepping down besides, well, you know, it's time to retire.
2: (laughs) Well, you could argue what the shelf life of an NIH director should be, and I may have (laughs) exceeded my no previous NIH director (laughs) appointed by a president has stayed on uh, for more than one president. And here I am on the third of those. And 12 years is a long time. It's really good for a scientific organization to have new vision, new leadership now and then. And this just seems like the time. And Frankly, Ira, if I'm going not to stick it out for another three years, I need to give the president a chance uh, to find the next director, nominate that person and get confirmation through the Senate before the term gets too late because it gets harder as you go along. So it seemed like the right time.
1: I hear you. Now, being in the job for 12 years, longer than anyone else has it. What do you recommend if the president asks you or if someone like me asks you, what qualities does the director of the NIH need to have?
2: Well, first of all, this person needs to be a scientist uh, of the highest order uh, who really has themselves contributed to science, who has the respect of the scientific community. They're going to trust this person is really going to be able to understand what they're doing and why. So gravitas uh, in a scientific uh, sense. But the person also needs to be a visionary who really is able to look and see across this wide variety of scientific opportunities where are we going and what could NIH do to speed up the process of making progress. Person needs to be a good communicator, uh, needs to be able to get other people to share that kind of vision, needs to be very good in terms of answering the long list of questions that come at us every day from stakeholders and from the congress and building that kind of trust that the organization really is founded on principles of getting evidence and applying them as quickly as possible to advancing human health. All of those things, it would be great, I think, if the next uh, NIH director also maybe represented the diversity a bit better than has been the case. We've only had one NIH director who was a woman, that was Bernadine Healy. All the rest of us have been uh, white guys like me. I would love uh, to see. As that search goes on, a real focus on trying to enhance the diversity of our leadership. And that would be something I think the president would resonate with. Well,
1: who do you think should be the next director?
2: Ira, uh, I'm not going to go there. I don't want to tip the odds not just between you and me. No one else nah, is yeah, listening. Yeah, right. Nobody else is listening, right? I have sitting in front of me and my computer, a little piece of paper where I've been writing down names, but I'm not going to tell you what's on yeah. there. We're going to see how this plays out.
1: Let's talk about some of the accomplishments and some of the projects that you have worked on. There was the Brain Project, which aimed to identify all cell types in the brain. You also helped launch the All of Us Precision Medicine Project. Uh, looking back, how do you gauge the success of these projects? And do
2: you have a favorite one? <clears throat> You're asking me to pick amongst my children. Always. Um, <laughs> Um, The ones you just mentioned, all of us uh, now enrolling a million participants in the most ambitious, most consequential long-term longitudinal cohort study is just phenomenal in terms of what it's going to offer us, both in terms of how to manage illness, but also how to prevent it uh, by really moving into a precision medicine approach. The BRAIN Initiative, just now this month, having come out with remarkable set of new observations about the cell census of what's going on in the motor cortex of both the mouse and the human. It's breathtaking and it's on the way to even more to come. And I guess I have to mention what we've done with COVID over the last couple of years, not something I planned, but once given the challenge, the ability to develop vaccines in 11 months uh, to run through more than 20 therapeutic agents with rigorous clinical trials And to develop tests, which are now making it possible for you to go to the drugstore and buy a home testing kit for COVID-19. Those are all things I'm really proud of. Involved a lot of collaborations with academia, with industry, but moved science forward in remarkable ways. Yeah, because, you know, I don't think people
1: really know what NIH does, right? You know, uh, they, they know that you're there and in this magnificent glass tower in Bethesda, (laughs) Um, you get your own parking space out front. Do people understand, like, for example, that you helped develop the Moderna vaccine for COVID? I mean, how, how do these things happen?
2: Well, there's a good question, Ira, and people think they just sort of happen overnight. And a really important message about everything that we do is how it has to build upon decades of investment in basic science. And that's another thing I really am proud of is that we've been able to keep our basic science enterprise flourishing over the course of the last six years now with help from the Congress. The budget for NIH has gone up by 43%. And half of that goes to basic science where investigators come to us with their new and great ideas. And we put them through the most rigorous peer review system in the world and fund the ones that are most promising. And things were pretty tough six or seven years ago, the success rate for getting your grant funded, was down around 12 13%. Now we're up above 20%, which is still not as high as it should be, but it's a lot better. And the basic science is flourishing. So yeah, coming back to mRNA vaccines in Moderna, that didn't just happen because somebody had an idea on January 10th, 2020, uh, when the sequence of the virus was released. That had already been worked on uh, by people like Barney Graham and Kasmikia Corbett at the Vaccine Research Center because we were worried about coronaviruses after SARS and MERS, and trying to figure out, is there a way uh, that you could make a vaccine much more quickly than the traditional approaches? And mRNA was under intense study, and work had been done over more than 10 years. People like Kathleen Carrico and Drew Weissman at the University of Pennsylvania, who I think eventually will win the Nobel Prize for their work on this, had set the, the, the whole foundation in place so that when the moment arrived where that sequence was there and you could see this is going to be a big threat to the world, that vaccine was designed uh, in the Vaccine Research Center working with Moderna in about 24 hours. And 63 days later, the first individual volunteer was getting injected with that vaccine as part of a phase one trial, which is about 10 times faster than has ever happened before.
1: One thing I've always found interesting about you, Dr. Collins, is that you're a very religious man, but also a man of science. Uh, Was it ever difficult for you to balance your religion with your career in science?
2: You know, it never has been. I think people are still a little surprised uh, that this isn't an issue, that you don't run into areas of conflict. I just haven't. I was not raised as a person of faith. I became a believer in my late 20s as part of uh, my experience being a medical student and a resident. And I have found it's enormously satisfying to have the ability to incorporate faith perspectives and science perspectives uh, in a typical day. Uh, You have to be careful, of course, about which kind of question you're addressing, if it's a question about how nature works, well, science is going to be the way you get those answers and you better be really rigorous about that and not fool yourself. But if it's a larger question about why am I here and what exactly is the nature of morality and what is like uh, the foundation for making ethical decisions and you know, what happens after you die and why is there something instead of nothing and why does beauty matter? I mean, all of those questions... Uh, To me, I want to be able to address those too. And science falls short in being able to give answers there. Faith is where I go when I'm looking for that kind of question. and In medicine and in health, they're all kind of wrapped up together. And it seems to me to be able to utilize all of those worldviews when you need them.
1: I want to talk about uh, someone who works for you. You're his boss, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yes. I think think, think, people see uh, Francis Collins and they say, oh, it's Dr. Fauci's boss. That's who he is, right? (laughs) Uh, What's it like working with Dr. Fauci and how did you two coordinate your messaging and, and your research aims and goals,
2: especially around COVID? Yeah, it's been wonderful. Working with Tony. He is the most knowledgeable, most highly respected infectious disease expert in the world. And he is in exactly the place where we need him at this moment of global crisis from this pandemic, steering his own institute, one of the 27 institutes at NIH, in a way that has made it possible for all of these advances to happen. And he stays deeply and closely engaged uh, with all the details of that research with remarkable staff in his institute that he's recruited and trained. So it's actually one of those things that I didn't see coming because I didn't know the pandemic was coming. I've worked with Tony in other areas now for 30 years, but boy, over the last 22 months, we have been joined at the hip. I talked to him probably a couple times a day and almost every evening sort of checking in about where we are trying to decide about strategy. And of course, a lot of that right now is also about the communication issues it is really, I think, very sad and unforgivable uh, to see the ways in which some people have decided to attack Tony because they don't like what he's saying. They don't like hearing the truth about what's happening with the pandemic. Uh, that, and he even has to have 24-7 security because some of this has gotten so nasty. That's not a pretty picture. That's a bad commentary on our society that you could take a public servant of this remarkable sort who's simply there to tell you the truth and turn him somehow uh, into uh, an enemy that you have to attack. Uh, that's one of the sad and shameful aspects of what's happened with COVID 19. But Tony is a person of great integrity. Uh, he simply lets all that roll off and keeps doing what he has to do, leading the science and trying to educate everybody around him about what it says.
1: Let's conclude the last few minutes we have talking about your future. Do you? Uh... Are you going fishing or something, or are you going to be still be around uh,
2: doing work? I wouldn't know how, <laughs> and, and and I don't intend to uh, spend a lot of time in golf carts either. No, I'm I'm not sure, Ira. What's uh, the next chapter? What am I supposed to do when I grow up? Uh, my my plan is and I'm really looking forward to this uh, is to step back in a much more visible way into my own research laboratory, which has been actually very successfully working, uh, since I got to NIH over 28 years, on type 2 diabetes, on this rare form of premature aging called progeria, where we are on the track, I think, uh, to potentially some pretty dramatic therapeutic steps uh, using gene editing. I'm looking forward to that. It'll give me a chance to reflect, to do some more reading about other areas of science I'm interested in, to do some writing, and to contemplate what is the next chapter? What's the next calling? Maybe even to get some sleep. That would be nice, too.
1: That would be nice. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking with Dr. Francis Collins, outgoing director of the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Are, are you satisfied with the progress that the genetics has come along during your tenure?
2: Yeah, I think I am. You know, there is always this tendency when there's a breakthrough in, in basic science, and I think you could call the genome project that kind of breakthrough, to overestimate the immediate consequences and then underestimate the long-term consequences. That's called the first law of technology, by the way. I think that's been true here. There were some bold statements probably uh, made, hopefully not by me, uh, that genomics was going to transform the practice of medicine overnight well, that didn't happen overnight, but boy, it's happening now. I mean, look at the way in which cancer has been completely revised as far as our understanding and our management by the ability to find out in every individual tumor what's driving uh, that malignancy. And also you can see how genome sequencing in the newborn nursery has become quite transformative, providing answers and mysteries that otherwise didn't get answered sometimes for months or years. So I think it, and, and certainly you would have to say, if you walk into any research laboratory that's working in human biology, everybody is using genomics in almost everything they're doing. It's transformed the way in which we approach scientific questions. So I'm pretty gratified.
1: Uh, That's terrific. Do you have a message for other researchers that you'd like to leave with them following all of the years of experience that you have doing research?
2: So two messages. First of all, we must continue to deeply value basic science. Uh, There's maybe a little too much emphasis now about targeted research that's going to focus on a specific disease, and we need that. But if we don't also fund the efforts that just build this foundation of understanding how life works, uh, then we are going to be sorry in the longer term. Second message, if we want to really move things forward in areas where opportunity arises, we need to come up with new approaches to do that more efficiently and quickly. And this is why I'm excited about the new program called ARPA-H, the Advanced Research Project Agency for Health, which takes a page out of the DARPA book that has done this sort of thing for defense and gave us things like the internet. (laughs) And we could do that for health. And I'm hoping with congressional approval, Looking likely uh, that we'll be able to launch ARPA-H at NIH in the next few months. And that will be a really exciting opportunity to bring use-driven projects forward and be able to move quickly and in a way that's not averse to risk uh, to fill in some of those gaps between scientific developments and clinical benefits. That's going to be a big deal. Watch that space.
1: We will be watching and, and thank you for taking time and thank you for, for all that you've done for us, Dr. Collins. Oh,
2: Ira, it's nice to talk to you. It has been a privilege. I am a lucky guy. I never dreamed that this would be part of my life experience.
1: That was our conversation with Dr. Francis Collins from back in October. Dr. Collins stepped down as director of the National Institutes of Health last week after 12 years in that role. And that's about all the time we have. Have a safe and happy new year. Hi, I'm Ira Plato.